Spark. It's really great to be with you all. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to study God's Word together and grateful for this continued space and time and worship with one another. Today we're going to continue our Gospel According to Luke series and we are in Luke chapter 9 verses 10 through 17 and the text reads as follows. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then they took them, then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat, they answered. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. So we note here in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in the other Gospels, that women and children aren't counted in this group, but of course would be present as well. So it should be the feeding of the 5,000 and counting, or 5,000 plus. So about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking, this might have been the first miracle, by the way, getting 5,000 plus people to sit down in groups of 50 each, just so you know, might have been the first part of the miracle. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples and distributed to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And that's the end of our reading for this section of Luke. And so we're, today we're going to be talking about the miracle of the fish and the loaves, the loaves and the fishes. Now, this miracle, I think, is one of the favorite miracles for Sunday schools to teach. I loved this story growing up, and I loved teaching it as well when I was doing a lot of Sunday school teaching because it was a nice, easy, clean miracle, right? There's not enough food. Everyone's concerned that there's not enough food. Jesus does a miracle. There's plenty of food. Um, in one of the gospel accounts, because we have this telling in all four of our gospel stories, um, in one of the gospel accounts, it says that there was the, a small kid's lunch. Um, in some of the gospels, we have a telling of the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the 4,000. So this was a great Sunday school story. I don't know if you've tried to ever teach Sunday school stories, but there's a lot in the Bible that is challenging to teach even in the New Testament. Um, so this one, nice, clean, easy, fun, fish, loaves, kids, lunch, everybody gets fed, good news for all. But I think that when we've taught that story in Sunday school, not at Spark, because Pastor Mark's very sophisticated with our very sophisticated kiddos, but a lot of times when we've taught this story, we've just let it remain at a very simple level. And that's not a bad thing. Um, why did Jesus feed the 5,000? It was to teach us to share. Like, that's the lesson we learned. Or maybe it was to test the disciples slash shame them into embarrassment so they realize who Jesus is and they always are doubting. Um, in fact, I wonder if they even were already thinking, hey, five loaves, two fish isn't enough for the 12 of us, let alone this big crowd, right? Maybe Jesus fed the 5,000 to show that Jesus is the answer so that no matter what we do, we know Jesus is the answer. Um, what is brown and bushy and lives in a tree and eats nuts and has a really cute 
girly tale. Like that's a Sunday school question. And the kids would kind of be like, I know the answer squirrel, but I think I'm supposed to say Jesus, right? We just know Jesus is the answer to everything. Um, maybe that Jesus fed the 5,000 to show that he's enough for all of our needs. Um, we often teach that when we teach the story. It's to demonstrate the glory of God for sure, right? Like this is an incredible miracle and to show that miracles happen and, and could happen again. And I think all of that is yes. And um, maybe let's look a little bit closer and see if there's anything additional we might discover today. And hopefully this will spur on conversations in your own home or with your own household or kiddos or grown-ups or friends um, and think or yourself and, and God as you think and meditate, what is this story mean to you today and how does it continue to apply in our life? What are we supposed to learn from it? Well, first let's just stop and ask the question, where are they? They are in a town or village area called Bethsaida. Um, they refer to it as a remote place, distant and sort of removed from everything. Bethsaida means house of fishing. Um, and so, or it can mean also like the temple of the fish god, we're not exactly sure. Um, and the next fun thing about Bethsaida is that right now we would sort of generally locate um, Bethsaida on the eastern side of the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern portion of the Jordan River shoreline. So as the Jordan River comes and, and falls down in the north part of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida is located east of that, whereas Capernaum and Chorazin are located on the west of the Jordan River as it dumps into the Sea of Galilee. Now where Bethsaida is located is actually a significant debate. Um, there is the great Bethsaida debate. Uh, for those of you who've come with us to Israel, we've taken you to a place called Etel. And the archaeologist who excavated that location some time ago um, excavated this location that they've referred to now as Bethsaida. Um, when you go to the park system has put up some really nice signs and beautiful verses to remind you um, of all the miracles and the visits of Jesus at Bethsaida. Um, and it is though today silted in a bit at the Sea of Galilee and removed from the shore. So it's always caused a bit of confusion. Could this really be it? It's also been excavated at Etel that it is also the Old Testament city of Geshur, which occurs in our story with King David, and you can read all about that in your Bible. But um, we do know that in this area of Bethsaida, which was the hometown of the apostles of Peter and Andrew and Philip, and we have these different references, maybe it's located here at Etel. But there's been new archaeology and discovery, and they have found down at El Araj, which is located much closer to the Jordan River and much closer to the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, um, they have found some really fascinating things there and a remnant of a church from the Byzantine period that they're going to refer to as the Church of the Apostles that was visited by some pilgrims early on. Wherever it is, we would like to suggest that it is somewhere north of the Sea of Galilee on the northern shore, east of the side of the Jordan River, and the disciples refer to it as remote. It's not a very huge village. It's, um, it's not going to sustain a large population like 5,000 plus people. Now we do also have some archaeological evidence throughout the Sea of Galilee of fishing industry and specifically this miracle. Um, the Church of the Multiplication of the Loaves and Fishes is in Tabcha in Galilee, which is not far from Capernaum, also on that northern shore of Galilee. It was first built in 350 CE. Um, it was enlarged in 480 CE. It was destroyed, unfortunately, in 614 CE and then sort of 
laid waste, nobody paying attention to it until excavations in the late 1800s and 1900s brought it back to bear and then a reconstruction and it is part of the um, the Benedictine order in the Catholic Church today. And those remains from mosaics remember, from the fifth century, remember the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Um, unfortunately though, they neglected in this mosaic to put five loaves, they only put four loaves. So people have some debate about that, like that's maybe not the right place, and here's, but they have a remnant of an ancient stone that is there that pilgrims used to go to and visit. Regardless, we have a place north of the Sea of Galilee that remembers this story. It was important for the early church and early portion of our Christian story um, and text to be able to remember this. All four Gospels tell the story of this miracle. We've also found on the far eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, about a bit south, midpoint and south, um, there is a location called Ipos, Hippos, which stands for horse, and um, there they found as they excavated a Byzantine church, also a mosaic um, near the Sea of Galilee. And these archaeologists in 2019 decided that this must be the place because it has fish and loaves in the mosaic. But then other archaeologists say, no, 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 it's just that you're near a fishing area. The Sea of Galilee is there and there's lots of fishing and those aren't loaves. That's clearly fruit. They're apples or some other type of round fruit. So there's a lot of debate. All that we know is that we could suggest that... Um, as, as this article has even said, a multitude of opinions as to where the event occurred. We know it was near Bethsaida because that's what the text tells us. So we definitely place it towards the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that the event is remembered. And we can also agree that there's plenty of miracles to go around. So somewhere near Bethsaida, whether it was at Tel or at Arouge, these two sites that are being discovered right around there, Jesus is with the disciples and a whole huge crowd has been following him. Now, after Jesus has healed many in this crowd, he notices that they're hungry and he says, let's get them some food, right? So let's talk a little bit about just some brief symbols we might see in this miracle. Things that I didn't learn about growing up, but I find very intriguing today. Um, one of the questions that people have been asking is sort of who is Jesus, what's going on here, and how is it working? But in the symbolism of this miracle, we find out that Jesus is trying to grab hold, or at least is taking advantage of the opportunity to grab hold of symbols that also connect us to an Exodus story, right? Just as Moses led a people of God's people out into a wilderness, into remote areas and wilderness-type places, so too Jesus has some people out in the wilderness in a remote place, and they are hungry just like the people were hungry with Moses. When God rained down manna from heaven, mana, literally, like, what is it? What is this bread? And just like way back then, as when Moses was overwhelmed with the crowds and didn't know what to do and talked to his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro said, divide the group into fifties and hundreds and tens and have them have them sort of divide on up and pick people, pick men that are of right judgment and divide up this system so that you're not having to answer every single question. Well, here it's kind of interesting in our story here in the Gospel of Luke, as well as in Mark and others, the groups are divided into fifties and hundreds. So maybe that's an echoing back to that Moses story as well of Exodus chapter 18. Perhaps too, five loaves of bread are sort of equivalent to the five books of Moses, of Torah, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
Maybe the two fish are reminiscent of the two tablets, or maybe they're re reminiscent of that double portion of manna that rained down um, the day before Shabbat or the day in preparation of Shabbat so that you wouldn't have to gather on that same day. Still today in observant Jewish households, you will find two loaves of bread Shabbat evening, perhaps bringing symbol these symbols to mind as well. Why does Luke take the time to tell us that there were 12 basketfuls remaining of fish and bread? Well, maybe because of the 12 tribes. So we have all these sort of resonances hearkening back to our Exodus story. And I think ultimately what we get to learn is that Jesus is doing a new old thing or an old thing in a new way. Um, but he is the prophet like unto Moses that we have been waiting for since way back in Deuteronomy, and then that's prophesied. And we are going to be having some questions just before this passage and just after, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And so maybe some of this is giving us those echoes. I love the fact that we also have um, in addition to the symbolic meaning of this miracle, some on-the-ground reali realities with the miracle as well. On-the-ground realities, I can say it. Um, so here we go. What is going on in Jesus's day with this crowd, with fishing, in this fishing economy? So let's look at the Galilee and fishing. Well, in the first century, the fishing trade was a robust economy in the Galilee. It involved a significant infrastructure and operated as a web of relations within the political and domestic environments of the early first century. You see, for fishermen to do their work in the first century, and you'll recall that of Jesus' disciples, several of them are fishermen, um, and James and John, sons of Zebedee, even have partners in a boat. So they have some sort of more enterprising business. Um, fishermen needed resources from farmers and artisans in order to do their work. They couldn't just decide to go out and fish, right? They needed flax for nets. They needed to have cut stone for anchors and for weights for those nets. They needed wood for boat building and repairs and baskets for their fish. Um, they needed then the processing of that fish. Once they caught the fish, they couldn't, they didn't have refrigeration systems, they didn't have a big cooling truck. Who was going to process this fish? Who was going to cure it, pickle it, dry it, salt it? Who was going to get that salt? Um, and if you had fresh fish and you wanted to market that for that moment that day, who was going to sell that for you? Um, how would fish sauce be made? How would that be marketed and then sold out to the larger Roman economy? Um, all those different oils. So there's a huge infrastructure actually involved in the Galilean fishing economy of the day. Um, in fact, uh, scholar Casey Hansen suggests this sort of connection between the entire fishing economy and Jesus and the first century Galilee that at the top of this is Augustus, Tiberius, um, and then down to Antipas who has collection rights and money and goods and he's going to take that money from the fishing and give patronage or tribute back to Augustus. Um, so below Antipas we have chief tax collectors who are going to be working through leases and collection rights. Where do you get to fish? Where do you get to dock? All of those types of things. Um, how are we going to process that fish? How are you going to pay money for it or such? Where are the collection rights? Then below we'd have brokers or tax collectors, toll collectors, of which, of course, Levi would have been one, one of the disciples who ends up following Jesus, right? And so they would be working on fishing leases and fishing money and licensing and processing and all that stuff and road and port usage and tolls. We know that between Bethsaida and Capernaum, which would have been the way that everyone would have to go, there was a toll point there. So if you caught something on this side of the, of the Jordan River on the Sea of Galilee and then moved over towards Capernaum, there was going to be a toll to pay as well. 
So that remote place where you wouldn't have enough buyers for your fish, but going over to this much larger port city of Capernaum or down towards Tiberias, you were going to have to pay a toll there. There would then be processors for the fish, right? The raw goods suppliers of salt or clay vats or wine for the pickling and all of these types of things. Um, and the people who actually do that work, people who distribute it, market it out. And then can you, I mean, if you just, we don't always think about this because we think about this sort of primitive place of the Sea of Galilee and then just these sweet little fishermen tossing out a line and following Jesus. But it's so much more than that. There would be families. They would be connected. There'd be having hired laborers. And then they need their own suppliers for their boat, for the repairs, for the nets and anchors and weights and floats and all of the things involved. So it's a quite a significant economy. Um, in the Gospels, we can see the following mentions regarding this social network from fishing towns and villages. Peter, Simon, a fisher from Capernaum, mother-in-laws from Capernaum from this harbor town, um, Andrew, James, John, mother of James and John is there. We mentioned Levi, that tax collector or toll collector. Mary is from Migdal, which means tower, and they were known for the pickling of the fruits. Um, villagers from Capernaum, the crowds from Tyre and Sidon, maybe they're also attracted to Jesus who's giving so much of this teaching from this fishing economy because they're from fishing villages too up on the shore of the sea of, of the shore of the Mediterranean. And we even have an event happening towards the south with the Gerasene demoniac um, right there on the shore. Now the primary functions um, exercised by aristocratic families were tax collection warfare. That's how they made money, right? They're going to tax everybody and go to war and steal things. And the small number of elites compete then for honor and the right to control and tax the peasant families, all the fishermen that we've been talking about, including all their suppliers. So those peasant families would remain at a subsistence level, and that would be reinforced by a natural hierarchy and competitive nature amongst those communities. So the entire empire, the Roman Empire, and the empire that Herod is continuing to support during this time, um, it's exploitive. The peasants have no say in their control or taxation. They don't get to vote on this. It's not a democracy. They're cognizant in their place of a rather rigid social hierarchy. So they develop strategies to evade control through lying, hiding, protest, all of those types of things. Any improvements that would be there, roads, um, infrastructure, aqueducts, harbors, were for the increased benefit of the aristocratic family, of the people who were doing the ultimate taxation, not for the benefit of the peasant families in return for their taxes. So everything is basically just you fishermen are not participating in a free enterprise where you can just go and fish and eat. Um, even fishers who owned their own boats, as we see in James and John said, were part of that state-regulated elite profiting enterprise. They are these, all of this was part of this embedded economy. And because fishing created a product and utilizes infrastructure, Herod Antipas and his Roman patrons would benefit in a whole bunch of ways and find ways to continue to tax or charge money in every single way possible. Gives us more insight as to maybe some of the... Um, that anger and, and challenging feelings that maybe the other disciples might have had towards Levi, the tax collector. Some scholars, Horsley and others, will argue that the Galileans were likely being taxed upwards of 90% of their income and their goods. So that meant if they caught 10 fish and then they went past that toll area, then they would have to hand nine over and keep one for their own family. Now, imagine then that you're hanging out with Jesus in Bethsaida. 
a remote place. There's a ton of people there that are hungry and need food. And the disciples come and say, you should send them away because they need to go and find some food elsewhere. We don't have enough to feed them, right? And hospitality indicates that we need to take care of them, but they can't hang out here. Send them away. And Jesus instead, looking, I think, at least you have to know the awareness of the first century hearers of this miracle and experiencing this miracle. Jesus doesn't say, okay, we've got five loaves and, and we've got five fish and two loaves. And, and so we're going to have to either, if we send them away, they're going to get taxed on the toll road or it's going to cost them extra money. And probably a lot of these people are impoverished and they don't have the money for food anyway. So we'll send them away hungry and they will stay hungry. Jesus then takes this little meager offering and multiplies it multiplies it so that people are so full that they have leftovers. Unheard of. Unheard of to have leftovers, to have excess in this economy where they're being taxed upwards of 90 plus percent by the Roman Empire and by Herod. So it's no wonder that after this miracle is recorded in the Gospel of John, John says that the crowds were like trying to make Jesus king by force. Because they would much rather have a king that feeds his people rather than a king who takes everything, including the tiny bits of mouthfuls from the people. A king that creates systems that benefit others rather than benefiting the powerful. Let's have more of that. Let's make this Jesus guy king, right? It's not just that Jesus fed hungry people, and that is a miracle, and that he fed a lot of them. It's that Herod Rome, the tax collectors, and all the others in between, all the elite and the aristocratic systems that profited off of these fishermen's meager offering and all of their hard work, they did not get a single cut of this miraculous catch that could feed well over 5,000 people. Jesus completely upended that first century system of taxation and system of goods and gave the food directly to the people. It's amazing, right? The food that God provides in this beautiful, abundant Sea of Galilee in God's land, the food and the fish that God has already provided for them did what food is meant to do. It fed hungry people rather than lining the pockets of the wealthy and keeping the people hungry. Jesus did an incredible miracle. Now, again, the context of which Luke puts this miracle in his gospel, in this chapter. Remember what Sidi was talking about when we left off in Luke chapter 9 with her just a couple weeks ago. She taught about how Jesus gave instructions to the disciples that when they go into these towns, they can rely on the hospitality of others. Take nothing with you. You can be sure that you will be taken good care of in those places. And she also mentioned that another beautiful turn of that text is that we can see that the communities that we visit can provide for us and for themselves, and we can trust them to have what they need from within their own community to take care of um, God's movement of the kingdom. But now things have shifted in this story. In the middle, we've come off of that with the disciples having that experience, and now they are in this world of strict hospitality, rules and obligations, and the disciples are incredulous at the command, you feed them, right? I thought you just told us to take nothing with us, and now we're in this place where we have too many people, and we can't feed. And so Jesus demonstrates this miracle that the disciples now will learn that no matter what they have, it will be enough. And that even if they are the hosts with the obligation of hospitality and all of the cultural expectations for that, even if they're the hosts rather than the guests, they are still to trust in God. And they're still to live in a place of abundance rather than scarcity. In Christ, we are called 
and empowered through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit to live out of abundance, out of, out of abundance and creative prophetic imagination of what could be rather than only what we see in front of us and what is. This miracle also helps us to answer the question that Omer is going to be tackling next week when Luke gives voice to that question of sort of who do you say that I am? Who is this before and after this story, right? Because we'll see that just before this, um, as Sidi was giving her teach, and then we see in Luke chapter 9, verse 7 through 9, Herod is trying to figure out what's going on. And he's perplexed because he sees all this craziness happening, this new kingdom of earth come crashing down. And he's like, who is, who is this Jesus? And some are saying that it's John raised from the dead and other Elijah, other prophet, like, right? All of these things are like one of the prophets come back to life from long ago, but Herod said, but I beheaded John. Who is this that I hear such things about him? And he tried to go and see Jesus. And when we see in our passage coming next week in verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he said, who do the crowds say that I am? So this symbolic, incredible view of maybe a prophet like unto Moses is in resonance here in this space. We see that Jesus is a king, not of the systems of this world, but of the systems of the kingdom of heaven coming crashing down. And we see that miracles happen. That Jesus is feeding of the 5,000 teaches us that Jesus is indeed like unto Moses, doing a very old thing in a new way for people also oppressed, for people wandering in a remote place, enslaved in debt, enslaved in unjust systems and under unjust rulers and powers who claim titles and divinities that only belong to God. That in that place, Jesus provides for us and empowers his followers to provide for one another, not only in the midst of these powers and principalities, but in defiance of them. Cutting them out entirely, inviting us to participate in and not just participate, but helping to create the new kingdom of heaven that is crashing into earth through Christ and Christ's rule. So why did Jesus feed the 5,000? To teach us to share, maybe to test the disciples, to teach them something, to show he's the answer, to show he's enough for all of our needs, to demonstrate the glory of God, to show that miracles do indeed happen. But let's add some more. To feed hungry people, to show he's like unto Moses, to upend systems and build anew, to teach us that if we have nothing, we can still be hospitable because in Christ, we can live out of abundance and not scarcity. He has come to give us abundant life. Now, Spark, just as Jesus took the bread in this miracle, blessed God for it, giving thanks, and broke it, and gave this miraculous feeding of the 5,000, he did the same thing at the end, towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, at the Last Supper. He takes the bread, breaks it, gives thanks, breaks it, and shares. And another miracle occurs. A meal that has shared, has fed more, many more than 5,000 men, women, and children, and continues to still feed us today. A miraculous meal that had, continues to occur now for over 2,000 years, and echoes of the meal that will be to come. So with all of that and more, let us turn our hearts let us partake in a continued table miracle today with enough bread and enough wine and enough welcome for everyone. We partake of the Lord's Supper together. So we're going to invite you to grab your elements of communion, the bread and the juice and the wine, and join with us. 
For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. What a miracle that is. What a feast. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.